This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is the New York Times bestselling novelist, J. Courtney Sullivan, whose works include Commencement, Maine, The Engagements, and Saints for All Occasions. She is also co-editor of the essay anthology, Click, When We Knew We Were Feminists. Sullivan's novel, Saints for All Occasions, explores the relationship between sisters Nora and Teresa Flynn, who migrate to the United States from Ireland when they're in their teens and 20s. The novel follows them into their 60s and 70s. Nora chooses a life of family and children, and Teresa becomes a cloistered nun. We began the interview with Sullivan talking about her attraction to this story of immigration that spans from the 1950s to 2009. I often have at least one character in my novels who is an older woman, a woman in her 70s or 80s. And, you know, I think deep down that's probably like my my age and in my soul, I'm probably 75 or something. So... Uh, I've, I gravitate very easily to that. Um, I love the idea of being able to tell a story over time, over many decades. And um, in this one in particular, because these characters make really important life decisions um, at shockingly young ages, um, they're immigrating to a new country as teenagers um, alone, and they're marrying very young um, they're making these decisions that will have uh, effects through the rest of their lives um, as young people. So I love being able to show them at every stage along the way. And I think also when you read fiction, you know, if you have a favorite writer, you'll notice that even if the books they write are really different one to the next, they always tend to return to certain obsessions. And one of mine, in all of my books, in one way or another, is this idea of the moment a woman is born determining so much of who she's allowed to become. And uh, for that reason, I, I like writing women who've been, who are born in a very different time period than I myself. And I guess the more personal answer to this question is that um, this book is my fourth, but I started thinking about it, I think, before I'd written anything or before I'd published anything, I should say, Um, about 13 years ago when my family first visited the little town in Ireland that my great-grandmother was born in, um, which is called Milltown Malbay. And it really was the first time that it clicked for me that we are only American because of the decision this woman made. And she immigrated at 17 alone. And, you know, spending time in this little tiny town that she lived in, um, getting to go inside this little one-room cottage that she was born and raised in, it really hit home for me that it was such an extraordinary thing that she had made this journey at such a young age. And, you know, especially from Ireland, the stories of immigration are often stories of women traveling alone. The central premise of your story is we have these sisters, Nora and Teresa, and they are in Ireland. And when they're in their late teens, maybe Nora's 20, they they leave. And she's engaged to be married to a man from her town who went to America earlier. 
they come and when they're first here living in Boston, Teresa is so excited by, you know, all of the new life that exists and the potential in America. And she ends up pregnant and has a child. And Nora decides to raise this child. And then Teresa ends up a nun. So I'm just wondering if you can talk about these characters, uh, you know, especially Nora and Teresa, and what captivated you about them. Part of the process of writing this particular story, there's always, for me, a research component that goes into writing fiction. Um, And I always want to kind of really make sure that I understand um, the external world of my characters. And then the fiction part comes in when I'm writing the internal world. And so one thing that happened um, in my life as I was starting to think about a new book was that I developed uh, a rather unlikely friendship with a cloistered Catholic nun, uh, Mother Lucia, and started visiting her at the abbey uh, where she lives. And she uh, was a close family friend who I had never actually heard of until just a few years ago. She went into the Abbey before I was born and my aunt kept telling me, I'm very much a lapsed Catholic. My aunt kept telling me that she thought I should meet Mother Lucia. She thought we would really hit it off. And I kept wondering what on earth I would have in common with this nun and who's been, you know, in a cloister for 30, for almost 40 years. What I discovered when we finally did meet was that she's this incredibly interesting woman. She has a PhD in English literature from Yale. She came to this rural abbey in the first place as kind of a young hippie with her then fiance and friends in search of social justice and peace and communal living. This was the late sixties with no intention of becoming a nun. And ultimately, you know, she kept going back and going back and ultimately joined. And spending time with her and spending time with the other nuns at her abbey, I ended up going and staying with them for several nights um, and working on the farm with them and hearing their stories. You know, when you're raised Catholic, as I was, you tend to believe that nuns are just sort of born fully formed in tiny little habits. But actually, as it turns out, you know, they have these incredibly often have these incredibly rich backstories. And so I wanted to kind of subvert um, the expectations of, of which of these sisters might end up a nun. You know, Nora has maybe more what we would expect the personality of a nun to be. Um, Teresa is so fun and fun loving and vivacious. And also she loves men, you know, she's boy crazy. Um, so I thought it would be a challenge um, for me as a writer and interesting to the reader to find out how did these women get where they got. And Nora, I think, is, again, she's so young in the beginning, and especially when her, her older children are born, she's really unsure of herself. And, and she's kind of almost like pretending at adulthood. And the way she knows how to do that is to be very, very stern. Uh, as she gets more comfortable with herself, by the time her last child is born, many, many years after the first, she's a lot more relaxed, and she's finally figured out how to enjoy it to some degree. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype is Jay Courtney Sullivan, author of four novels, including Saints for All Occasions. So the the book is really based 
also on on a lot of secrets and the mm-hmm. secrets that we carry through generations everything from the the paternity and maternity of Nora's oldest child which her other children never knew about they never knew about her sister and she really is the focus of the book and it's really dependent on secrets what what intrigues you about secrets both in human nature and in literature that you you've definitely hit the nail on the head that would be my my other obsession in writing uh is is the secret you know and the way that it it works i think both in real life and in literature often is that the keeping of the secret is the thing that will sort of warp you and and you know can often lead to much bigger problems than perhaps if the secret was just shared. Also, you know, I think especially coming from a large Irish Catholic family, as I myself do, it's often the case that some people have bits and pieces of a story, but not the whole story. And that was something I wanted to look at here was everyone kind of knows something, but no one has gotten together and had a conversation where they're able to actually map it out and figure it all out. It's funny, when I was working on this book, I was touring for the book before it, The Engagement. And um, I'm giving a reading at this little bookstore in Connecticut. And a woman comes up to me, a woman in her 70s. And she said, oh, I'm very interested in what you write about families. And I said, oh, thank you. And she said, well, mostly because I'm your cousin. And so (laughs) it turned out she is a distant cousin of mine. You know, there were these different, uh, my great grandmother and her siblings all had fights that had splintered off different groups of the family after they stopped speaking to one another. And so um, I never met this person before, Um, but she said, oh, let's have dinner sometime. So we had dinner and it was really interesting because I was talking to her. She was very forthcoming about many different family secrets that I had never even heard before. She said, you know, when I was a kid, no one told a child anything. You just didn't tell kids anything. And I said, so looking back, you know, does all the secrecy bother you? And she said, oh, they weren't secrets. We just weren't entitled to know. And I just thought that was so fascinating and, and maybe really a generational thing as well. You know, I think our generation very much feels like, we have to have the whole story and it's much healthier to have it all out there um, and process it. But a previous generation may have seen it very differently. I felt in your novel, there was this pattern kind of, of motherless children. So Nora yeah. and Teresa's mother died. So Nora sort of became the de facto mother, but, um, and then Patrick didn't have a mother, but you also have, um, a character, Maeve, who is adopted later by one of Nora's adult children and his wife. And she's obviously not their child because she's Chinese. But that seemed mm-hmm. like something you were interested in is maybe the absence of a mother. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting. I'm happy that you mentioned Maeve because I feel like she doesn't get mentioned very often. There's so much going on in this novel. Um but I, I really like her character. You know, there's um, there's a lot going on with her, even though she's kind of a minor character. And 
um, yes, that's a huge part of it is that this family is so attached to um, the legacy of being Irish. And yet the only grandchild Nora has is a little girl who's adopted from China. Um, and they name her Maeve, which, you know, is very much kind of in keeping with um, their traditions. And there's a scene where she's um, working on her family tree with her grandparents, you know, and, and they've completely absorbed her into their family in ways that are good and bad. So there's no discussion of really where she comes from. There's only a discussion of where they come from. And her aunt, um, Bridget, is watching this and thinking, is this healthy? Is this, you know, this seems a little odd that Maeve doesn't have a connection to where she really comes from. And, uh, and Maeve herself is starting to realize that. I mean, one thing about Maeve um, is that she's able to access, uh, really through the internet, world of fellow adoptees who are asking questions and that was really important to me because that is that is a real thing that's happening um, a lot of people are finding at least community and in many cases also their birth parents and then learning that the stories they were told about themselves are not necessarily the real stories um, I really wanted to get them into the book to contrast it with the way that Teresa gives birth in this mother and baby home in Boston um, which was a real place that was still operating for two decades after the story is over. Um, this is another case where it seems like in these places, all the records are always burned in fire. That seems to always be the story <laughs> in novels and in life. And in this particular place, they say that all the records were burned in a fire. So um, no one was ever able to access, you know, they were closed records anyway, but no one was able to access uh, the child that they gave up or the mother who gave them up. And in recent years, it's really extraordinary. You know, I went online and I just put in the name of the hospital and there are all these message boards where women are saying, I gave up a baby boy on this date. Um, and in many cases, you know, someone saying I was born on this date. And so they're connecting to one another and they're not needing any higher institution to do it for them. Um, so I think it's that legacy of what it even means to be a mother or to be mothered because uh, it's true. Nora and Teresa's mother, you know, dies when they're so young and Nora really almost plays the role of mother for her sister. Um, and then she plays the role of mother more literally for her sister's child. Um, and then there are all her own children as well. And really the one she, I think, loves the most is Patrick, who's not her birth child. Um, uh, so I think there's, you know, even with the nuns, I mean, there's something uh, to making your final vows where there's sort of always like the one uh, the one sort of doubt that you hold on to and in getting past that doubt is the important thing in making your final vows. And what I was told by many nuns I spoke to is that for a lot of women, the final thing is, can I live without ever being a mother? Can I join an abbey and close off that option to myself? And um, what ends up happening in the novel anyway, is that Teresa ends up mentoring so many of the younger nuns 
And so in a way she does mother, you know, she, and also these young teenagers who come to the Abbey, um, she mothers all of them in her way and in a way that their own mothers probably couldn't. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype is J. Courtney Sullivan, author of four novels, including Saints for All Occasions. The handoff of Teresa's child, Patrick, when he was born, I felt reading it that she had no agency in that. You know, she was young. Nora was her older sister. She was, you know, more of a mother figure for her. They were in this new land. And while Nora couldn't conceive of this baby being given to a complete strange family to be raised and she decided to raise it, Teresa really had no option Nora said, this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, she just had complete dominion. And yet, as we go through the story, I felt like Teresa was really able to let go of any anger about that. And Nora was really making sure that they weren't connected in a way that Teresa wanted to be. I mean, Nora essentially cut her off. But in in real life, you'd think well, the only person who really lost everything was Teresa. So that's the thing, I think, with Nora, um, and it goes back to the, the idea of secrets and what we'll do to keep them and what we're willing to give up to keep them. And Nora, for a variety of reasons, um, is willing to give up pretty much anything to keep the secret of the fact that she's not Patrick's mother. And so she is willing to cut off this relationship with her sister, who in many ways is the most important person in her life. Um, And, you know, I think, I think I've written about this in different ways that sometimes the person who's absent is the one who shapes your present uh, the most. And, you know, that can be a function of someone you love dying in this story. It's really a function of just this, separation and the silence between the two sisters. Um, I think what Teresa realizes at the Abbey and through counseling young people mostly um, is that it's important to be open. It's important to tell the stories of what happened to you. And um, that again is something that we might not expect from the character who becomes a cloistered nun, but that's how she feels at the same time. She really has not, she has nothing to lose because she is a cloistered nun and she's given all of that up. Um, Whereas Nora works so hard to keep her family um, intact. And she feels that the way to do that is to be incredibly rigid and controlling and make sure people only know as much as she ever wants them to know. So, yeah, I mean, I think as the sister's, grow older and their experiences are so different, their life experiences. You know, Teresa wants Patrick to know about her when she's, when he's a teenager. And for Nora, that's just something she can't do. She cannot let herself do that. But as you say about the agency, I mean, the women who really did give birth in places like this, this place and places like it, um, they had no agency. You know, they were teenage girls. And this outcome is actually really a fairy tale compared to what happened to most of them because they often did um, give birth and then say, wait, I want to keep this baby. And they weren't given that option. 
And then they never knew what happened to that child and were told to just go back to their lives, never tell anyone that this had happened and just pretend that it didn't happen. I think we're living in a, an increasingly open culture, uh, a culture of openness. And I think that's a very good thing. Um, but if you look at even on the more institutional level, how things like this played out in the past, you know, with adoption, for example, it really was the case that you were told if you adopted a child, the best, healthiest thing was to just absorb that child into your family and never tell anyone the child was adopted. And um, the same for these birth mothers, that the best thing was to just pretend you'd, you know, gone off to your cousin's house for the summer and never tell anyone what you went through. And I think the idea of how we carry that kind of deep, deep, deep secret, you know, in our bodies and in our souls through the course of a lifetime is a really profound thing to look at. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype is J. Courtney Sullivan, author of four novels, including Saints for All Occasions. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I have um, a passage that that was so valuable, not just this passage, but the whole book um, to me when I was writing Saints for All Occasions. I picked up this book, uh, The Gathering, by Anne Enright. I read it on a plane home from Ireland, and in the back of it, I took so many notes for this book that I was sort of stuck on at the time. To me, I think she's just one of the most talented writers who's ever lived. And I, this particular passage in this book, um, I could read the whole book, but I think that would be too long. So... Um, I'll just read this one passage. She she writes about a brother um, who is an alcoholic. And I think the drinking piece is a big part of the story in Saints for All Occasions. Um, I have another novel, Maine, about Irish Catholic families as well. And alcohol, I think, plays an even bigger role in that story. But the way she describes her brother's alcoholism here just blows me away and sort of I think now kind of underlies the way that I see it. So this woman's uh, brother is coming to visit her in the hospital just after she's had her first child. He was eyeing the glass on the bedside locker, and I told him it was only a little airplane sort of bottle. But he finished it off for me before he left, warm and flat and grubby as it was with whatever pungent stuff was spilling out of my pores as I deflated slowly into the room. I didn't mind. I told him I was glad to have the smell of it gone. Sitting on the Brighton train, I'm trying to put a timetable on my brother's drinking. Drink was not his problem, but it did become his problem eventually, which was a relief to everyone concerned. I'm a bit worried about his drinking. So after a while, no one could hear a thing he said anymore. Quite right, too. It was all complete shit. Alcohol wrecked him, as it does. But I'm trying to put a time on it when I stopped worrying about him and started to worry about his drinking instead. Maybe then, with my new baby opening her eyes over and over, as if to check that the world was still there. That was probably the moment, just then. A drinker does not exist. Whatever they say, it is just the drink talking, or they only exist in flashes. Sitting against a yellow wall, looking at your favorite sister, who has just unsheathed herself of a child. A look in your eye like old times. The rest is not to be trusted. 
Do you want to say anything more about why you chose that? As I talked about earlier, there's these sort of cycles, right? The cycle of secrecy, the cycle of shame, and certainly there's a cycle of alcoholism. Nora's father in the book, you know, going back all the way to Ireland in the 50s and and earlier, um, definitely has a drinking problem. And now here's her her son um, who has one too, and yet he owns a bar and his life kind of revolves around that. I love the idea of separating at a certain point, the sort of person you think is in there, if only the drinking wasn't part of the person. And Patrick's death, of course, comes after a night of a lot of drinking. And so there's different interpretations of what it means. You know, is it just an accident and he happened to be drinking? That's one way of looking at it. Um, Or are you essentially committing suicide if you drink as much as he does and then get behind the wheel of a car? So there's a lot of different ways of viewing it, I would say. And I think that the way she describes that is really beautiful. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky to write or change a lot from the first draft, or you just like how it came out? Yeah, I'm going to actually just read the very opening of Saints for All Occasions because I couldn't get this chapter quite right. And the reason was that I had this paragraph that from the very beginning, I thought this is going to open the book. And my agent and I would even talk about it and say, we don't know where this book is going, but we know that's the first paragraph. And ultimately, it wasn't the first paragraph. (laughs) We had to let it go. I had to let it go. Um, When I think about the beginning of this book, it really is like the essence of what it is to be a fiction writer, because it's a very sad passage. And I should say that, you know, this book, I think there's a lot of levity in the book. There's a lot of humor in the book even though I feel like most of what we've talked about today seems very dire. Um, And there is a lot of sadness in the book too, but um, you know, the first chapter is very sad. And um, when I was writing it, we were on vacation in Maine and we're in this lovely little cottage that we rent every year. And my husband's getting ready to go to the beach. And I'm just like, I think I understand where the book needs to start. And I go into the bedroom and, you know, it's just a beautiful day in Maine and the birds are chirping and I've decided to cast myself into this cold winter night when this woman is finding out her child is dead. And, you know, it was like so incredibly satisfying when I finished this. But also I had let the entire day of vacation just kind of vanish. So this is just the first half page of the book. In the car on the way to the hospital, Nora remembered how, when Patrick was small, she would wake up suddenly, gripped by some terrible fear. That he had stopped breathing or spiked a deadly fever. That he had been taken from her. She had to see him to be sure. They lived then on the top floor of the three-decker on Crescent Avenue. She would practically sleepwalk through the kitchen and past Bridget's door and then down the hall to the boys' room her nightgown skimming the cold hardwood, the muffled sound of Mr. Sheehan's radio murmuring up from downstairs. The fear returned the summer Patrick was 16 when they moved to the big house in Hull. Nora would awaken, heart pounding, thinking of him and of her sister, images past and present wound up in one another. She worried about the crowd he ran with, about his anger and his moods about things he had done that could never be undone. She met her worries in the same old way, 
Whatever the hour, she would rise to her feet and climb the attic stairs to Patrick's bedroom so that she might lay eyes on him. This was a bargain she struck, a ritual to guarantee safety. Nothing truly bad could happen if she was expecting it. Do you want to say anything else about that? What was important was to start, and what I was missing, I guess, was um, to really start at the most sort of dramatic point. Um, This chapter goes on to, you know, talk about all the ways that Nora tried to kind of control the universe um, on behalf of her son, starting from the time he's a child until now he's a man of 50. And um, what happens the night that he dies and she uh, realizes that she wasn't, you know, really able to stop this thing from happening. I think Nora is such a control freak, I guess, for lack of a better term. And she's also um, really invested in her role as a mother because that's what she's been um, her whole life. Now her kids are grown. She uh, doesn't play as active a role in their lives as she used to, but that's still how she identifies. And so I think it was important, even though the first chapter takes place in present day, to start off with her remembering their childhood and remembering how much easier it was to control what happened to Patrick when he was, you know, 10 as opposed to 40. Where do you write? So I used to write in my apartment at my kitchen table, um, but that has changed since having a baby. Now I really need to get out of the apartment. Um, So I go to a place called the Brooklyn Writer's Space, which is lovely to have right in our neighborhood. Um, It's just kind of a room full of like library carols and there's writers in there. I don't know what they're writing because people don't really talk to each other, um, which is wonderful. I think all we want is to go in there and be silent. Um, I could never write in a coffee shop or place where other people are talking because I'm way, way, way too much of an eavesdropper. And even when I want to turn that off, I can't. So for me, just the silence is the most important thing. And uh, at the Brooklyn Writer Space, everyone else seems to also feel that way because it's lovely and quiet all the time. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I love that question because um, I, it, that's like never applied. <laughs> I, I feel like it's so much harder for me. The hardest part of writing is getting into it, is getting started. Um, there's a million reasons not to write every day and things that feel more pressing or more urgent. Um, and also it's just hard to go from the world of your own concerns into this totally other world of your characters. Um, and so for me, it's like the getting in is so difficult. Uh, if I actually manage that part, it's such a joy to be there that leaving always feels like a letdown, like leaving is something that only happens because the real world is pulling me back. I need to get home to my child or I need to walk my dog or I need to, you know, meet a friend. So I love that question because like, I want to hear what other people say about that. I'm going to go back and listen because I don't ever feel like, oh, I've got to get away from writing. I always feel like I should be writing and it's more, (laughs) how do I get away from all the other demands and do that? Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, It's been different with different books. I 
always start with my agent. Her name is Brittany Bloom. She's brilliant, and we've been working together since I was 19, so we're going on 20 years pretty soon. Um, and she just knows my work so well. Um, so she's always my first really trusted reader, and I know that she will tell me whether something's working or not. Um, my editor at Canoff, Jenny Jackson, is usually one of the first, probably the second one after Brittany. And um, with this book, with Saints, it was the first novel I wrote that I actually shared with a lot of people. Um, by a lot, I mean maybe five or six um, friends who are also fiction writers who, unlike me, are people who have been through MFA programs and are very used to workshopping um, with friends you know, who are writing books. I really wanted to make sure that this book was the absolute best, best, best it could be. And so I wanted a lot of different um, viewpoints on the story and kind of different views from people who I knew valued different parts of the book, if that makes sense, and would put more emphasis on things that the others might not. Um, so I did feel like this book was the one that I probably worked the hardest on and that probably, I don't know, it, it is again like children, you know, you can't really say it's like, this is the best one or I like this one the best. They're, they're all different. But this one was definitely, um, I think, the most complex story. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, <laughs> it's not fun, you know, but rejection is just kind of part of it. When I was really early on, before I had any novels published, I was sending out short stories to every small literary journal, and I never got one accepted. I, I personally think it's easier to have a novel published than have a, a short story published in a literary journal, but I might just be speaking from my own experience. You know, it's just something that never leaves you, because even once you begin to publish and have some level of success, you're always going to have a bad review. You're always going to have someone who doesn't like what you've done. And it can be kind of um, stinging in the moment, but I never, I have a hard time believing writers who say they don't read their reviews. I, I wish I could be that way. Um, I always wonder, is it true? Do they really have that willpower? Um, you know, for me, it's been a function of like letting it sting for a day, but then you move on, you know, and, and trying to think of it in terms of the fact that such a subjective thing that we're doing. We're just telling stories. And, you know, you, if five of your friends read a book, probably one of them thinks it's amazing. One of them thought it was okay. You know, didn't finish. It, that's how it is. So when it's your own story, your own baby, you, you feel very protective. But it's just um, a very subjective form. And we're very, those of us who get to do this, I mean, how lucky are we? So you can't really get that hung up on it. And what is your favorite word? Well, you know what? My favorite word, I decided, I was thinking about this last night. When I was a kid, my favorite word was sparkle. And I'm just going to stick with it because I think I still like it. Sparkle. <laughs> You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Jay Courtney Sullivan, author of four novels, including Saints for All Occasions. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>